Would you pray with me? Lord, we do not come to your word as those who stand in authority over it. But Lord, we come to your word as those who are standing under your authority. Speak your words to your people this morning. If you can use me, Lord, do it. Any of my words which are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But may your word remain. Bring fruit in our souls through your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. You know it's the first Sunday of Lent. I don't know if this is your 80th Lent or perhaps your first. Perhaps there's both of those experiences represented in this room. I don't know. Because I don't know, I'm going to share with you a couple of things about what this season means. It's an ancient practice of preparation leading up to Christ's resurrection at Easter. And by ancient, I mean stretching all the way back to the fourth century. It's a long time. This word Lent, it comes from the old English word for springtime, which very literally means to lengthen, as in the days getting longer, right? We can all picture that, the sun shining a little bit longer each and every day. Now, it's not the fact that that Lent falls in the springtime, which gives it its name. Instead, there's something symbolic going on here. What might that be? You see, Lent is pictured as a sort of springtime for our souls. Spring for our souls. It's a season of renewal and cultivation so that life will break forth from the soil of our lives come Easter. We're going to return to this idea of renewal and cultivation towards the end of the sermon. But as you know, there are 40 days in this season. Besides the fact that 40 is a very biblical number, is there a reason for 40 days? Well, these 40 days of our Lenten journey, they they mimic the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. We read about that this morning from the Gospel of Mark. Mark, who is extremely brief in his descriptions. Jesus was driven out by the Spirit into the wilderness as he was beginning his prophetic ministry, just after he was baptized. And we read from Mark this morning that that Jesus was completely alone. He fasted from food. He had no spiritual, I'm sorry, no physical or worldly comforts to speak of. And in that environment that deserted place, and in those circumstances with nothing, Jesus focused himself completely upon God the Father, what it meant to obey him, to follow him completely. But of course, as as Mark told us, we heard that there was someone there with Jesus. Who was it? Satan. Satan. The tempter. Messing with him. Now, if you have a bit of deja vu here, you're right to. This scene, perhaps you haven't thought about it this way, is very reminiscent of what's going on in Genesis chapter 3. See, just as Satan came to the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, as they began their lives as image bearers of God, so too Satan comes in the beginning to this 
new man, the second Adam, as he begins this God-given ministry, which ends at the cross. The question is, what's going to happen this time? Will things be the same? Will Jesus go the way of our first parents and all those humans after them? Or will he triumph? Will he be victorious over temptation on their behalf? You see, Adam and Eve, they couldn't resist temptation despite all the luxuries of the garden. Will Jesus resist despite having nothing in the wilderness? Well, as we know, Satan, at least what we are told, tempts Jesus with three specific temptations. First with food, second with fame, and then third with power. And listen to what happens on Satan's third try. I'm going to read from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I'll give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, the entire temptation experience for Jesus boiled down to this one question. Who would Jesus worship? Who would he worship? It is fitting that today, on this first Sunday of Lent, we come to the fourth and final part of our very drawn-out and scattered sermon series on worship, which we began some time ago on Epiphany Sunday and are ending now. And so far, we've answered three critical questions. What is the essence of worship? Remember the Magi? Why do we worship corporately? And third, how do we worship corporately? This morning, we come to the last question, not having to do with corporate worship, but this question. What is individual worship? What is individual worship? Worship can be a confusing topic. We often misunderstand what worship is, especially when it comes to how broad it is and how deep it goes. For instance, we we tend to know that worship is something that we do together. Very often, though, we we, we think of music simply, we think of worship simply as the music, right? It is the songs that we sing in a church service. I mean, after all, what are the worship wars that have gone on for decades, except a debate about the style of music to use in our services, contemporary or traditional. This is foolish, and it's foolish for many reasons, not the least of which is, as we discussed, corporate worship isn't even mostly about worship, let alone completely. In a similar way, we we often don't understand that corporate worship isn't the only place where worship occurs. We tend to think of worship as a church thing, a Sunday routine, right? Do we realize that we as individuals worship even when we're not at church, even when it's not Sunday? 
Now, it's true that the Bible's default when it comes to worship is to talk about worship in terms of corporate worship. And that's because God's redemptive plan is to save a people, not just persons. And God's people are inherently a community of worshipers. As, some, as hard as some people try, you can't have Christ without the church. And the word church means the assembly of those who have gathered to worship Christ. But here's the thing about that. The reality of our day-to-day is that the majority of our time is not spent in environments of corporate worship, right? Last time I checked, this sanctuary is empty most of the week. Instead, we live as individuals in the various vocations which God has given to us, although the hope should be that our lives, our individual lives, will intersect and interact with our community of worship as much as possible, right? And yet, the truth is, most of our lives here and now are not spent in corporate worship. And this is where individual worship comes in. So what is it? What is individual worship? What does it look like? Now, in the two sermons I gave on corporate worship, the the way that I described corporate worship was first and foremost as an activity. An activity. It's something we come together as God's people to do together. We do corporate worship. With individual worship, it is not so much an activity as it is a way of life. A comprehensive way of life. In other words, individual worship is not so much something that you do as it is something that you are. Here's why that is. To be human is to be a worshiper. We could consider being a worshiper a core identity. You and I are always worshiping something. At every moment, we are worshipers. Why is that? Why is it? It's God's design. The fact that we can't not worship speaks to God's handiwork upon our human souls, specifically that we would worship Him. We're made for His glory, right? James K.A. Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, he, he says that humans are teleological creatures. What he means by that is that everything we do is done for an ultimate end, telos, or an ultimate purpose. And he writes this, quote, To be human is to be for something, directed toward something, oriented toward something. To be human is to be on the move, pursuing something, after something. For us as humans, there are all sorts of somethings that we consider the ultimate end, or shall we say the ultimate good. Maybe it's food, maybe it's sex, money, power, happiness, science, technology, work, leisure, yourself, your partner, your family, your country, transcendence, Allah, Yahweh, Jesus Christ. What is the ultimate good which you live your life for? 
What is the thing that you love more than any other? There is something. There is something. Perhaps many some things. A whole pantheon. This loving something as ultimate is essentially what individual worship is all about. You see, to worship someone or something is to treat that person or that thing as the most valuable person or thing that exists. That's worship. And it doesn't matter whether you're worshiping sex or work or yourself. Your worship will manifest itself in a way of life that is centered on that thing which has become your God. Now, this is why the scriptures so often speak of idolatry. What is idolatry? It is the worship of other and lesser gods. Now, when we picture idolatry, we tend to picture something like going to a pagan shrine and bowing down to a statue. I spent three weeks in India, and I saw hundreds of people doing just that, literally doing that. And that's certainly blatant idolatry against God. But let me tell you, there is a far more prevalent and more insidious form of idolatry that exists all around us. I can see it in the life of every person I meet. I can see it in your lives. I can see it in my life. It is the idolatry that causes us to live our lives in such a way that declares that something other than God Almighty is our ultimate love. You might not even know you're an idolater in that way. And thus, it's insidious. Remember all the way back to Epiphany when we asked this question, what is the essence of worship? What is worship at its core? And we saw in the story of the three wise men how worship included these four things. Response to God's revelation, adoration, allegiance, and sacrifice. In the same way, our worship, whatever it is that we are worshiping, it doesn't matter, it's displayed in those four things. Let me show you what I mean. Imagine a workaholic. This guy loves to work. And work speaks his language. It understands him. And he listens for its voice. He wakes up thinking about work. And he goes to bed thinking about it. It's what he reads about. It's what he dreams about. It's what he prays about. He understands it. It gets him. And truthfully... He adores it. Now, it's not that he loves his job necessarily, but it's the work. It's the work that he can't help but cherish. It's what he talks about more than anything else. The successes, the challenges, this client, those employees, these prophets. He certainly adores the lavish lifestyle that it affords him. And therefore, work holds his allegiance. Yes, it's his contract, but really it's just the work itself he may not have complete loyalty to one company or one industry, but his career is king. No one matters more than his supervisor. That is until he's the supervisor. 
No success in his life is more important to him than his job performance. What comes back on the evaluation? And because of all this, his work is exactly what he makes sacrifices for. He sacrifices his relationship to his wife, certainly to his children. He forgoes church when it's not convenient. And let's be honest, it's never convenient because he's either working or he's sleeping after working. Whatever other thing holds his attention, he will gladly give it up when work beckons. And at the end of the day, if work demanded it, it's all up for grabs, even his integrity. Now, this guy knows. He knows he cares too much about work. Call it a vice. But in no way, shape, or form does he think of himself as a worshiper of work. But that's exactly what he is. You see, all of life is spiritual. All of it. Everyone is religious. The only question is, what are you religious about? That's it. God created us as spiritual beings. There is no getting away from it. We can trade in the glory of the immortal God for the glory of statues and sex and work, but we can't trade in our nature to worship. It's who we are. It's who we are. If we are inherently and inescapably worshipers, then if we are reasonable, we should want to be sure that whatever person or thing we worship is actually worthy of that worship, right? That it would be something that deserves our devotion, something that won't let us down and leave us empty, something that is gloriously good, perfectly powerful, totally true, and lavishly loving. The created order around us actually reveals this thing, this person, one almighty God, the maker and ruler of all things. And the Bible declares this one God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the maker and the redeemer of the world. And the life of every single human being was intentioned by this God to be completely committed to his goodness and glory in the world. And therefore, that's what redemption is about. It is about remaking the worship of God. It is about remaking us as the worshipers that God wants and God deserves. And what does this mean but that we should live our entire lives in response to God's revelation and in perfect adoration, allegiance, and sacrifice? Now, if there is one verse in the whole New Testament that really gets at this idea, it is no doubt Romans 12, 1, where the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers and my sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Lay your life on the altar and cut it open. 
bleed yourself out for the glory of God. True worship of God is offering your entire life to God in love and gratitude. Every moment, every thought, every word, every desire, every action, every possession, every activity, every purpose, every circumstance. Does that seem over the top to you? Is that even possible? Listen to what Paul says elsewhere. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. My brothers, my sisters, God's will for you, God's will for me, is that we surrender every inch of our lives. Every inch of our lives as an expression of worship. All of it. When I was a freshman in high school, I learned to play the guitar. My older brother played the guitar and I wanted to be just like him, so he got me started. And then I picked up some things as I went along. And there were two things that I really wanted out of my guitar playing life. First of all, I wanted to lead worship songs at the Christian school I attended. We had chapel every week. Secondly, I wanted to write songs. And I ended up doing both of those things. My senior year, I led worship in music at our weekly Tuesday chapels. And after school and after sports and my time at home in the evenings, what I did was I channeled all of my teenage angst and emotion into writing really awful, terrible songs, songs that I was 100% genuine about. And some of those songs were about love, but most of them were about God and my journey trying to understand Him and what following Him meant. And I can remember at some point while I was in high school, the evangelical megachurch, which my family attended at that time, was going through Rick Warren's book, book The Purpose Driven Life. Perhaps you were reading that at the very same time. When I first got to Living Faith, I saw enough copies on the bookshelf that maybe that was going on here at Living Faith. Do you know what the first four words of that book are? It's not about you. It's not about you. When I read those words, I was really moved. Our lives are not about us. Our lives are about God. Those words in that phrasing was particularly impactful for me. I remember reading those words. I believed them, or at least I wanted to believe them, with my whole heart. And so what did I do? I wrote an awful, terrible song but a really genuine song called Not About Me. And I actually remember how the tune of this song goes, and I'm not going to sing it for you. But I do want to read you the chorus. It's not about getting quick pleasure. It's not about gaining earthly treasure. It's not about me. 
It's about being a daily sacrifice for you. I could understand as a teenager that my life was not about me, what was about God. And what I wish I could say is that two decades later, I'm living that out perfectly, but I don't. I fail. In fact, in many ways, I feel like I'm worse off now than I was then. And yet it's true. And I still believe it or want to believe it with my whole heart, no matter how much I struggle, that my life isn't about me. Your life isn't about you. We do not exist for ourselves. We don't exist for anyone other than God our creator and redeemer. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You do not belong to you. You were bought with a price. So glorify, worship God in your body. Individual worship of God is treating God as the most valuable person or thing that exists because he is. Christ is worthy of your complete surrender, your complete imitation. Our lives were made through him and for him in the beginning. And though we fell into sin and death through his cross and his resurrection and his grace, He gives us new life. And therefore, hear me, worship cannot be separated from obedience. Worship cannot be separated from sanctification through the Holy Spirit. Worship is a way of life, specifically a way of life that is for God and in God's way. If you get nothing else, hear this. Individual worship is for God and in God's way. So we come to this question. How do we worship as individuals? How do we worship God as individuals? How do we do it? Yes, it's singing hymns and praise choruses as you're driving in your car. Absolutely. Yes, it's, it's waking up to read and to meditate on God's word. Yes, it's getting on your knees to pray. It's giving generously. It's serving humbly. It's fasting joyfully. All of that is worship. All of the spiritual disciplines are worship. But so is everything else. So is everything else. All of life is spiritual. Everything must be done for God and in God's way. Your relationships must be worship. Who you love and how you love them. Your work must be worship. What you do and how you do it. Your play and your leisure must be worship. Your finances must be worship. Your time management must be worship. Your eating and your drinking must be worship. Your sex life must be worship. Your vocation 
And your purpose must be worship. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, don't do it for the glory of anyone else. Because if you're not doing it for God, you will be doing it for something or someone else. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. On my phone, I'm surprised it has this, it's old. There's this touch ID function, which allows me to unlock my phone with just my fingerprint. And I find this to be pretty useful, although at first I was like, whatever, I'll just punch in the numbers. It's useful, but I also find it to be a little bit annoying. Here's why. There is something about the pads of my fingers that make the Touch ID only work for a few weeks at a time. Uh, it could be the yard work that I'm doing. Uh, it could be the, the dryness of my hands because of all the stinking hand washing that we are doing. I even switched over from my right finger to my left finger, hoping that that would, you know, have less wear and tear. But I don't know. Every few weeks, I have to update my fingerprint. I did it this morning. <laughs> That's why I thought of this. <laughs> I have to recalibrate my touch ID so it actually does what it's supposed to do because I'm changing. I'm not where I was, and that's not a good thing. Lent is a bit of an opportunity to do this sort of recalibration with our hearts. You see, every moment we are worshipers. The only question is, what are you worshiping at this moment? What are you worshiping? What Lent is, is a chance to recalibrate, to reorient, to renew your life so that your worship is actually what it's supposed to be, so that it's actually worship of God and not something else. We're supposed to in Lent, yes, at all times of the year, but especially now, to come and repent of our idol worship. We've changed We've left our one true love. We've turned our backs upon God and we must repent. We must give up these other and lesser gods, these worthless idols that will leave us empty. And in the vacancy that they leave, we are to renew our commitment in every moment to worship God alone. My brothers and my sisters, your heart needs recalibration. You need to update the fingerprint of your worship. I want to leave you this morning with an invitation. Join me. Join your brothers and sisters throughout the world. Join faithful Christians throughout the ages as we walk this Lenten trail of renewing our worship. Let's go together. Amen.